Hi, I'm Ali Maldro, the host of A Public Affair on Tuesdays. You can listen to this show any day of the week, any hour of the day on the WORT smartphone app or on wortfm.org. If you love what you hear, click that donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth has never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. But Tim trying Good afternoon, Madison. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Maldro, and this is a public affair. While people of color are quickly are quickly becoming the majority of the U.S. population, the perspective of white Americans still dominate the media that is made and consumed daily. But now media makers of color are rising up to advance a set of different narratives. Today's guest is the author of the new book, of a new book that offers a guide, shifts perspectives in news media and entertainment. She also hosts and produces the popular talk show Uprising on KPFK. Thank you for joining us today, Sonali Cole Hatkar. How are you doing? I'm doing really good. Thank you so much, Ali, for having me. Thank you so much for writing your book. It was so it was so nice to get to read this book early on in in it coming out. Um, how how was it to to write Rising Up: The Power of Narrative? in pursuing racial justice? Well, it was a a really important project for me. City Lights Books approached me a couple, you know, about a year and a half ago, asking if I would write a book about racial justice. And because I'm the also the racial justice editor at Yes Magazine right now. And I really wanted to be clear that, you know, I'm not an activist per se. I'm not an organizer. And so any book about racial justice that I write would have to be written from a journalist's perspective. So I thought about it long and hard. And I realized that one of the things that I that I think about on a regular basis is how we do storytelling, right? How we as journalists um, do storytelling and then how we view the stories that are told all around us. It's something that I think about a lot. It's something that I'm really sensitive to. Anytime I watch a TV show or a movie, I'm thinking about the intentionality of the story being told specifically as it concerns race and racial justice. And so I thought, all right, this is really a topic that needs some focus. I want to write about it. And it turns out it is a new front in organizing as well, where people are realizing that policy shifting isn't alone, uh, isn't something that alone will work to change the world. In fact, policy shifting is not as successful uh, when our culture hasn't shifted. But when we shift our culture as well, then policy shifting becomes easier. How do we shift our culture? By telling stories. And so I wanted to write this book about narratives, which I define as intentional storytelling, and specifically looking at mass media, how you know, the narrative setting industries like Hollywood, which of course right now is on strike, which is amazing, how Hollywood shapes our views on people of color, how news media, corporate mainstream news media shape our views on people of color. And now in recent years, because we're becoming a majority minority country, how people of color 
arresting back control of our stories, telling our own stories, casting ourselves as three-dimensional, complex human beings deserving of the full suite of rights and how that is a critical and central part of being a multiracial democracy. Um, I also examine social media, education and critical race theory, deep canvassing. Um, you know, it's a, it's a book that critiques um, the problems, but also most importantly offers up the solutions to changing our culture on racial justice through storytelling. So it was a really, it was an amazing book. I, I was able to draw from, you know, I've been a journalist for more than 20 years now. I was able to draw from this wealth of interviews that I've done over the years with people like Patrice Cullors, one of the co-founders of, of Black Lives Matter and Alicia Garza, as well as uh, you know, people who are now household names in the film industry, Ava DuVernay and Ryan Coogler. But I was, you know, speaking with them when they were not as well known. Um, and, and when the only platforms at their disposal who would give them a platform were independent media. So uh, the book is chock full of, of interviews that, uh, uh, you know, has, is drawing from interviews I've done over the years with racial justice leaders, with narrative setting leaders, and uh, I hope it's it's a, it's a short book, so no, it's something that people I, can I, use. It is a short book, but it is really you are a very precise writer, and I I felt like reading this, you know, your your ability to construct a narrative was so clear throughout the book, and to to make this. Um, this point over and over again around information and misinformation and, and where we're at in terms of social media and what that means for who is included um, in mass media at this point. I grew up in the time of media consolidation. And so when you talk about policy, um, I, I think back, you know, what it meant for, for Clear Channel to take over the radio, what it meant, you know, in that brief window where there were these five major players in media and there was not yet the kind of abundance of social media, what that meant in terms of the way music was marketed to our generation as young people or my generation as young people. Um, I, I'm curious now, you know, how, how you feel like this book approached you know, strategically where we are as people of color in terms of sharing our voices via social media um, versus, you know, how we are, you know, I guess, integrating journalism um, and integra integrating mm -hmm. mainstream media opportunities, you know, versus independent, independent media opportunities. Yeah, you know, there was a, a, a really great example is how police brutality, racist police brutality is reported, right? So um, when I started as a, out as a journalist, um, as, a, as somebody involved with independent media, I would attend protests against racist police brutality. I'm in Southern California, so LAPD, you know, has a sordid history of, of uh, abuse. And so I would go and I would cover and I would uh, cover these protests. I would talk to the activists. I would talk to family members who had lost loved ones. For me, it was a no brainer that the people directly affected by racist police brutality, the survivors of it, the victims of it, um, were telling the truth because why would they lie about it? Whereas the corporate media, of course, would go to the police report of any Incident. Anytime there was an incident, they would look at the police report, which is written by the cops. And so they would present that first. And maybe as a footnote, they might bring in the fact that, well, there's some doubt about what the police did. 
Um, and maybe months later or years later, the truth might come out if we were lucky. And things are different these days. And a big reason why we had the mass racial justice uprisings of 2020, sparked by the murder of George Floyd, was because of the way in which the narrative was set. So I write about Darnella Frazier in my book, the young Black woman who witnessed the murder of George Floyd, videotaped it. She did not wait for corporate media to come interview her. If she had, she would have probably still been waiting. She immediately posted it to social media and she labeled it, uh, you know, very clearly as, um, you know, as, as police brutality. And I'll just quote from the book. She captioned the video of the brutal killing with two gut wrenching lines, quote, they killed him right in front of Cup Foods over south on 38th and Chicago. No type of sympathy. She included two broken heart emojis. Hashtag police brutality. So did was she made very, very clear what had happened to George Floyd. She expressed sympathy and she labeled it police brutality. She set the narrative. Then corporate media had to come and report on what was done. And there was no time for them to um, privilege the police view of it. And immediately it was clear that George Floyd had been unjustly murdered and people saw for themselves. So that filter, the corporate media filter was completely subverted, the traditional corporate media filter. And that was thanks to people having access to their own media. Now, of course, you know, there's all these other issues with Twitter and stuff being owned by billionaires, which we can talk about. But yeah, I mean, that's that's a great example of how people have been able to wrest control of their own narratives now. I mean, I think that is such a complicated example because of the level of brutality. And I mean, you've got this young person who stood there for, you know, 20 minutes watching somebody be murdered in front of them in broad daylight. Um, and I think, you know, when you reference kind of going to the protests and you think about what's the difference, I, the reason I, in Wisconsin in 1992, as a young kid, was aware of police brutality was Rodney King. That was my initial relationship to that story. And it was because it was caught on film. So this idea that we're just believing people of color now, I think the truth is, is that people of color are gathering evidence um, and broadcasting it to the world out of desperation in really horrific moments. And I think that's really complicated, especially when you think about the testimony that same young person gave, Sonali, where she said, you know, I wish I had done more than film it. You, you know, I wish I that I wish that hadn't been all I could do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And so I, I think uh, the 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 role of the media and the role of how how we tell stories and who we tell stories, because, you know, that same story that you just shared with us on the radio of of what happened to George Floyd. I, I've heard the way that that's been covered um, by Republican pundits or by pundits on the right. And that story is, is told very differently. It starts very differently. Um, and the necessity of that cruelty is justified. And that is still part of the conversation we're having about race in the United States of America. Yeah. 
for you as a woman of color, did did you ever feel like it was important to insert your own experiences in into this book? Where where did you the, draw the line in terms of how willing you were to become part of this story? You as a storyteller um, and you as an, a person who's experienced being discriminated against on the basis of gender and race within the field of journalism. Oh, I did not hold back because, you know, when you write a book, it's basically like a long form op-ed, right? Uh, so, you know, when I'm reporting a story, when I'm writing a reported story, I, I wouldn't put my own experience into a story. But when I'm writing a book, it's it was important for me. It makes the point that I'm making in the book that people of color tell stories very differently from white storytellers because we are informed by our own life experiences. It's the same in Hollywood, right? The reason we see white-dominated stories is because they're written by white writers. The reason why stories are centered around white folks is because they're generally written by white people. We write what we know. And, we, we, and, and for those journalists who think that their life experiences don't impact their reporting, they are lying to themselves. Thank you. <laughs> Everything that we go through in our lives informs the way in which we filter the world, the way in which we view the world, how we understand the world, and then how we um, express ourselves. So as a woman of color, I am naturally sensitive to the experiences of other women of color, of other women in general, of other people of color in general. And so I opened the book with my experience uh, a few years ago when my child, more than 10 years ago, I, my, my older son is now nearly 16. I think he was three or four at the time. I was grocery shopping in a middle class neighborhood in, in where I live, near where I live. And then um, this tall white guy behind me as I was pushing my cart around looking at apples or whatever, he's trying to rush past me and he mutters something under his breath about driving like an Asian. And I was like, excuse me, what? And I confronted him and he accused me of driving like an Asian. Never mind that I wasn't even driving a car, right? I'm in the grocery store pushing a shopping cart, but apparently I wasn't pushing it fast enough for him. And instead of going around me, he decided to just utter a racist epithet. And that was, you know, and that's the kind of thing that as people of color, we experience very regularly. I also yeah. acknowledge that as, yes, as the idea yeah. of being treated like you're in somebody's way. Yes, like, exactly. you by living your life is somehow an inconvenience to somebody exactly. else. Um, and then also, you know, I think it's really important for me to acknowledge that as a non-black person of color, I am I I don't experience the level of racist violence and racial trauma that black and indigenous folks experience in the United States, but I'm not white and so I have an accent or whatever, I have, a, I have an immigrant name. So we, are, we all, you know, people of color have different and varying levels of privilege slash racial trauma. And for me, it was really important to acknowledge that, that I wanted to uplift the voices of especially black people in America who suffer the worst forms of racist violence. And then also, of course, indigenous folks um, who also suffer extremely important, uh, extremely deep levels of violence and, 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 you know, historic that goes back to the origins of this country. But I also talk about in the book how as a journalist who is a woman of color, I've had doors closed to me because I didn't sufficiently suppress my political views. Uh, mm -hmm. corporate, uh, corporate mainstream media and journalists, they don't have a problem necessarily, especially in recent years, having um, BIPOC folks enter as long as we 
don't sound too black or brown. As long as we subsume that part or push down that part of ourselves that, that makes us different. So for example, on NPR today, you may actually not realize you're listening to a, a person of color because they might sound white until they say their name. And then you might be like, oh, that, that's not a white person. Um, and NPR is still having trouble bringing in people with different accents, people who actually don't sound white. And the same is true in in print journalism, the same is true in Hollywood. If we suppress our our, our the, the thing that makes us racially different, we are more acceptable. But 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 that, the whole point of, of us being fully human is celebrating who we are, celebrating everything about ourselves and not being afraid to express our immigrant roots, our black and brown roots, whatever roots we have, that is an antidote to white supremacy. And, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier about the way in which George Floyd's story is being told, there is a story that the right tells in all of its, you know, policies. And that's a story that we need to learn to identify. The story of the right is that America was created by intrepid white settlers who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and now they're being outnumbered and these black folks want special treatment and the quote unquote illegal immigrants coming over the border want to cut in line in front of us and they're taking what's ours and we got to protect it. It's a politics of fear. It's a story of fear. That's their overarching story and you can understand every policy decision within that framework, why they're against abortion, why they're against immigrant rights, why they're against, um, you know. Also, it's also a story of scarcity. It's also a story of scarcity. And the, and the story that our, our nation, you know, I think at, at its best thrives on is this story of abundance, the story that there is enough room for all of us. There is enough um you know, joy and happiness and healthcare and education for everybody. That quality of life is something that the everyday person is completely worthy of. If you're just joining us, you're listening to a public affair on WORT. My name is Ali Maldro, and today we're talking with Sonali Kolhatkar. She is the author of the new book, Rising Up, The Power of Narrative in Pursuing Racial Justice. She is also the host of Uprising, a popular daily drive time program on Pacific Radio in Los Angeles. So Nali, I I feel like this this book um, for the most part has a, a pretty straightforward kind of message, which is, you know, we have to broaden who we're listening to um, in order to have a real understanding of complex issues. And we we have to, you know, interrogate whose whose voice is being highlighted and emphasized over and over again. Um, I was surprised by what you said when you were talking about cancel culture, um, in, in part because you get into kind of the temptation to cancel racist white people. And I just, I thought you were going to go one direction with that. And then you really, um, yeah, I, I felt like there was so much integrity in what you had to say in that section of the book. Can you talk a little bit about cancel culture, cancel culture and the temptation to cancel racist old white people? <laughs> well, first, yeah, I mean, the, the term, you know, the, the, the right wing likes to 
um, reappropriate terms that the left uses. Um, you know, the, tr the traditional idea behind cancel culture was that when somebody in power, somebody with a voice, somebody with a big platform perpetuates injustice in their words in i'm specifically interested in in racist stereotypes if you know if if there's a well-known comedian who says a racist thing or a president makes a horribly racist statement they deserve to be to be called out and that you know if we call that canceling whatever and, and if they lose you know opportunities because of that they get canceled quote unquote now that's one thing right and uh, the right loves to complain about that the other thing and, and i think that's valid because you know, if somebody has a big platform, the only way in which the rest of us can challenge them is to call them out. And that is important. It is important for us to be able to clap back at power and to speak truth to that and to 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 correct, to course correct them. So, for example, like Jimmy Fallon, right? I talk about how he was not, not exactly canceled, but he was corrected when he decided to showcase TikTok dancers and only invited white influencers. And he was called out and he turned around uh, uh, the next week and, and, and uh, brought on the black creators of these TikTok dances. But the other thing that I want to talk about is that I write about that you're referring to, which is that you know, we all have racist white people in our circles, our families, our neighborhoods. You know, this is America. So we they're there. And so I have them in my family. And during the Trump years, it was really difficult for me to tolerate this person's, you know, Facebook posts and to reconcile that with the fact that this person claimed to love my children um, as, as members of the family who are non-white children. And I alienated this person because I, I was like, my existence is not up for debate. Um, and, you know, what I really had to think about was the fact that there are millions of Americans like this. Are they naturally racist? Nobody's naturally racist. People are all brainwashed into, you know, into, into hating somebody who looks different to them. That's brainwashing. And if you can be brainwashed one way, we can bring you back. It's like trying to break somebody out of a cult. So I talk about how important it is for us to start talking to one another. If you can stomach it, and if you can't stomach it, if you if you have experienced too much trauma, and you're like, this is not my job to, to educate I, white racists, that's, that's like, fine. <laughs> I feel like so many of us, but I feel like when you say, it's like trying to talk somebody out of a cult. You know, when, when people are in a cult they believe often um that they're in a space of faith that you're trying to disrupt their relationship to god Al almighty um when when people you know are are in a pyramid scheme like you know the the kinds of desperations and poverty that dictates somebody surrendering giant aspects of their own decision making um to to go along with a narrative that's been fed to them uh is really complicated it's really complicated and i i i guess i wonder if you have been successful in telling people stories throughout your career that do shift their perspective yeah. about communities of color, that do shift their perspective about women's rights or the LGBTQ community. Um, is is storytelling enough? No, I, and I think it's how you approach it because the thing is nobody likes to be confronted. Whenever you, If you're confronted about something you've said and done that is dumb stupid false and you're and, and you're called out in a public way most people 
most of us, almost none of us will admit in, immediately to the fact that we've screwed up. Um, we dig our heels in because we want to save face. And so if we want to call somebody out because we want to embarrass them, if that's our goal, then fine, go ahead and do it. But is it going to actually change them? Is it going to actually be constructive to do that? Probably not. Will it make you feel good? Maybe for a moment. Um, and so what I've found, and, I, and I've had to tell this to myself because it's so tempting to cancel the white racists. Uh, it feels satisfying. It's almost therapeutic. But does it actually help anyone? And I think the answer is no. So I've had people in my life, not necessarily the overt white racists, but the liberal, the well-meaning white liberals, who through gentle nudging, uh, you know, who've made statements in front of me that have been kind of like jarring um, and uh, that I've been able to move by saying to them, you know, this thing that you said privately, pulling them aside and privately, not trying to embarrass them in public and saying, you know, this thing that you said was really hurtful. You know, when you made this comment about all Asians are this or that, um, I want you to really think about how that comes across. And you may not realize it's an insult, but it really is. And it hurt me. And when people see that they've hurt you personally, it's really hard to say, well, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, so deep canvassing is a topic that I talk about in the book that the group People's Action has has uh, started putting into practice. Social scientists have studied it. How to change people's minds one-on-one, -on -one, something we all can do with narrative shifting. Instead of confronting people about their views and throwing facts at them and trying to get into a debate, ask them questions about their lives and share with them facts about your life and the very human parts of your life that are impacted by whatever policy they might be you know, just knee-jerk supporting. And that's it. And then leave it at that. And you probably made more difference to their internal mindset than by debating them and confronting them and trying to call them out. I, you know, I want to, I want to agree with that. And I think that that is <laughs> a deeply hopeful and beautiful way to think about the world. And at the same time, I think about kind of the narratives that are being created around the trans community right now. Right. And uh, you're talking about this very well resourced Republican machine that is saying, hey, Americans, don't worry about the economy. Don't worry about the infrastructure. Don't worry about jobs and wages. Worry about which kids have which body parts and are playing which sports. Yeah. Right. That's where we should be focusing and that's what we should be governing right now. Um, and that story has has caught on. Um, and you're talking about a really small population of kids. Yeah. You know? And so the idea that that little community of young people is going to um, be as loud as this politicized narrative that is trying to make our, our communities afraid of these kids. Um, you know, really challenging. so here's the thing, right? They have a lot of money and a lot of resources. Considering how much money and resources and platforms they own, they still are not as effective as they would be um, or, or, or if, if, the, if the rest of us. Imagine if, if social justice-oriented media had the same amount of resources, we would have won the battle of ideas because our ideas are winning ideas. The idea of a multiracial democracy is not hard to sell. What they're trying to do is very hard to sell. And they, they've made tiny amounts of progress considering how much money and resources they're pouring into it. So they're not as effective proportionate to 
the resources they have. That also needs to, we need to call out the right-wing media for, say, pushing transphobia, but we also need to call out the liberal media, the so-called liberal media, the corporate media, which I do in my book, but specifically on the issue of transphobia, um, this didn't make it into my book because it just came out, but um, I follow Imara Jones's work, who does incredible, she runs this podcast, Translash, and she just published a study about the New York Times fueling transphobia. And, mm. you know, so, so, so we need to call out these so-called liberal media who claim to be uh, based in values of democracy, et cetera, and so-called objectivity, who end up echoing the right-wing media's lines. And I think we'll have more progress calling them out because they have a larger uh, megaphone than you know, and, and, and more credibility than some of the right wing media, although Fox News has probably the biggest megaphone of them all, sadly, and is still only able to convince a, 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 a very vocal, you know, but very significant minority in the United States. The majority of things, abortion rights are popular in this country. Uh, Medicare for all is popular in this country. The Our ideas, progressive ideas are actually winning ideas. So we have to figure out how do we tell our story effectively? Their story is one of fear. What is our story? Where's this, the joy, the, the fact that our future that we envision, if, if our policies are in place, our children have a future, right? The climate crisis is averted if our policies are put in place. Nobody goes bankrupt because if, if someone in their family got cancer if our policies are enacted. So how do we start telling our stories, our joy-centered stories based on collectivism and justice? So well, let's focus on I that. I think that we we saw uh, attempts around that when you talk about, you know, Biden's build back better. Right. When you talk about policymakers across the country trying to leverage resources around COVID-19. Um, but I think COVID-19 is is a good area for us to really talk about the importance of accurate information and who's distributing accurate information and that impact there was there was the desire to say hey america can you imagine being a place where everybody gets maternity leave and where you know people have free child care and you know people were actually getting the child care tax credit and saying it was life-changing um those policies were incredibly popular and yet not sustainable in our current political climate I, I want to invite you now to read a little bit of your book. I yeah. want to remind folks that you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. This is a public affair. I'm Ali Muldrow, and today we are so lucky to be on the air with Sonali Kolhatkar, who just wrote an incredible book, Rising Up, The Power of Narrative in Pursuing Racial Justice. We're going to hear a little bit of that book right now. Thank you so much, Ali. Uh, this is from chapter two of my book, Independent Media Makers on the Front Lines. Um, it's a section titled, Same Subject, Different Narratives. In media, it matters a great deal who's telling the stories. White media makers tend to reinforce narratives that preserve their racial privilege. Journalists of color who personally feel the impacts of white supremacy are more likely to offer counter narratives based on racial justice, especially when they're freed from commercial constraints. Here is a stark example. In early 2020, Howard Bryant, a senior writer for ESPN, the magazine, and a sports correspondent for NPR's Weekend Edition, wrote a book called Full Dissidents, Notes from an Uneven Playing Field. Bryant, an African-American member of the corporate media, opened his, books with the, opened his book with the words, to be black is to be a dissident. 
His NPR colleague, Scott Simon, who is white, in a brief six-minute interview skated across the surface of what Brian's book was saying about white America being unable to accept black Americans as full human beings. Simon even opened the conversation saying much of the book is not about sports, but I do want to draw at your expertise in sports, almost as if he were warning Bryant to stick to what he knew best. Simon started the conversation with the subject of Colin Kaepernick, an appropriate opener considering how Kaepernick's story embodies the way America treats black dissidents and considering that Bryant focused on it in his book. But then Simon spent much of the rest of the conversation on other well-known black athletes, O.J. Simpson, Michael Jordan, and Tiger Woods, saying, quote, a lot of Americans thought their success and their popular adulation indicated America was over this race problem. This race problem? That a white reporter could so blithely dismiss the nation's sordid history of racist terror and current hostile climate is a testament to NPR's own race problem. Still, in his answers to Simon's superficial questions, Bryant kept redirecting the conversation to what really mattered, saying, quote, what we see in the corporate world all the time, whether you're an athlete or not, is do you want diversity of color and diversity of thought or simply diversity of color? He added later in the conversation that, quote, the minute black athletes begin to embrace a political element of blackness, we know what's going to happen to them. Well, that's as far as the conversation went, and only those who purchased and read Bryant's book would eventually find out what he meant by the corporate world's rejection of black Americans who criticize America. A few weeks later, I interviewed Bryant about his book on my radio and television show. Like Simon, I started with a question about Kaepernick, which he answered in a similar manner to his NPR interview, saying, how much power do you, re do you really have if you lose everything for opening your mouth? I then followed up by noting that right-wing forces implied that Kaepernick was not patriotic, accused him of questioning the idea of America, and even denounced him as anti-military. This led us into a conversation, one that Bryant explored in an essay in his book about the influence of the U.S. military on the NFL and professional sports. Together, we explored a much deeper and broader terrain than the conversation led by NPR's Simon, with the same author about the same book, the interview was rich and textured. It questioned establishment talking points, upended assumptions, and explored the links between systemic issues. NPR's interview embodied precisely what Bryant was criticizing. The narrow confines of Simon's vapid interview perfectly illustrated the author's claims about the limits of discourse in America. Instead of encapsulating Bryant's point for the audience, Simon exemplified it. If Bryant, an NPR insider, could not get an honest, in-depth interview about his book on his own platform, what chances have other people of color who attempt to replace racist narratives with those based on racial justice? Thank you so much for, for sharing that and for really naming, I think, that difference and the pronounced reality of that difference. I, I've watched this throughout my life. I've watched people interview folks um, and I've watched white folks take a different approach to uh, talking to people of color than talking to other white folks. And I, I think, you know, naming and exploring that and teasing that out is something that is tremendously uncomfortable because we do want to erase the narrative of racial difference. We, we do want to, um, you know, live, live in a nation that is beyond, you know, identity being a factor in a person's opportunities. So Nali, 
as as you've kind of examined this, the the tension around how we talk about race and the stories we tell about people of color in the United States, particularly mainstream narratives around communities of color, um, are are there moments where you you feel defeated in the in the face of kind of the the enormity of this problem and the the tradition of this problem right this is this is the long term um reality of this nation and nations around the world in terms of how we talk about specific populations you know i used to feel defeated and in the last couple of years i have stopped feeling that way and i'll i'll explain exactly why um Unfortunately, in independent media, our failing is that we tend to focus entirely on all of the things that are horribly wrong in this country, you know, because we're we think of ourselves as wanting to point out uh, as, as as being on the front lines of needing to point out every, every injustice. That is that's our job. But when we do that, we tend to also fuel hopelessness. And I found myself doing that a lot, like covering the breaking news, the sort of crisis journalism, especially during the Trump years. It was really hard to put a brave face on anything. It felt really difficult to be optimistic about anything. Every day was like a horror show. What is he going to say next? What is he going to do next? Who is he going to dehumanize next? And, 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 you know, feeling off kilter, feeling like the world was falling to pieces. Um, and and on the left, we tend to exemplify that so much to the point where, you know, sometimes I might say to colleagues or even people who listen to left media about something positive that's being done or some potential that's going to happen. And, and the reaction often is, well, well, nothing's going to change. Well, that's not really going to work anyway. And there is a lot of cynicism on the left. However, we have lost sight, I think, by and large, of the fact that we have made huge amounts of progress, but we don't see it. There's a psychological tendency to view the past as being better and the present as being awful. But actually, we've made huge progress. So people want to know, you know, what is uh, what happened to Black Lives Matter? Three years ago, it was so active. Now, nobody is no, no one is talking about it. Yeah, the mainstream media moved away from covering Black Lives Matter. That doesn't mean that Black Lives Matter went away. Black Lives Matter, the movement just celebrated its 10th anniversary. The movement has proliferated around the country in ways that the mainstream media is failing to capture. We here in Los Angeles. Absolutely, but there was the backlash to the Black Lives Matter movement. From it's the something- corporate media. From well, corporate- and also like thinking about, you know, in, in a place like Wisconsin where Kyle Rittenhouse came to a protest um, and, and killed two people, the, the, the climate in the United States of America feels hostile. And I think people's way of demonstrating, people's way of, of public, we have, a, we have a travel warning for the LGBTQ community in terms of going to Florida right now. Yeah. I completely agree with you that we have to celebrate progress. And I think there is a need to kind of sound the alarm in this current moment. And I do think your book does that with respect to what it means to be a journalist in a time where Donald Trump popularized and coined the term fake news. Sonali, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. no, so, I, I see what so you're saying that that conversation around it, 
you know, misinformation. I, I do think it's complicated, right? Because you want to be positive And at the same time, you're well, see, obligated to tell the truth. I'm not I'm not trying to be positive. So it's really important to not put a positive spin on on things that, yeah. that don't have positivity. Absolutely. What I want to see more of is coverage of places where people have made a difference. For mm. example, in Southern California, our Los Angeles City Council, we've elected abolitionists to our city council. We've elected the people who pushed Measure J that moved money out of policing and into community reinvestment. Whereas the racial justice editor at Yes Magazine, you know, I've covered the work that Kat Brooks is doing in Oakland to um, have non-police alternatives to um, mental health crises. There are people who are literally doing, you know, closing down jails in Detroit, right? Those stories are not getting covered by the mainstream media because they don't garner the clicks that the bad news garners, right? And so they don't get the coverage. It's important for us to uplift those stories that are actually making a difference because when we uplift those stories, those have the effect of of making clear to people in other parts of the country, hey, if those if, the, if if LA can elect abolitionists, if Seattle can elect a socialist, maybe we can do that in our city council. That is very powerful. That has a very serious impact. That is where independent media comes in and independent media needs to not drop the ball on covering where the stories are, you know, what the stories are, where, where the difference is actually being made, where progress is actually being made. If, because if we're not covering the progress, then we're feeding apathy and cynicism. And if we're feeding apathy and cynicism and hopelessness, then we're, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So we have to cover where the stories are happening. And we have to give platforms to those, you know, the, the urban farmers, the climate justice warriors, the, the grassroots activists, the union leaders, you know, the young people at the forefront of Starbucks are desperate for news coverage. We should be giving it to them. If the New York Times doesn't cover it, so what? They are always behind the news, right? They are always late to the party. They didn't cover Black Lives Matter till Black Lives Matter was a big news in 2020. They 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 were like, for them, it was a revelation to see Black Lives Matter in 2020. The rest of us had been covering it since 2014. And yes. so, you know, it's important for us on the left, left media to go to where the stories are and to know that we're going to get there first. And then corporate media is going to try to follow us and is going to try to play catch up with us. We are setting the agenda. We actually do because the stories that we cover. Today, I was reading a new uh, uh, op-ed in the New York Times about healthcare by these two opinion columnists who are arriving at this painstaking conclusion that the only way to fix our broken healthcare system was to have free healthcare that was automatically enrolled people and was free at the point of service. Uh, duh, we've been covering Medicare for all for years. The corporate media always plays catch up. Our policies are winning policies. Our stories are winning stories. We have to keep covering them. I want to talk to you a little bit about compensation, um, because I think, especially when you talk about including people of color in, a, you know, everybody talks about diversifying their workforce, right? Um, yeah. Education constantly talks about diversifying their workforce. The media has been talking about diversifying the workforce for decades now. Um, a major factor in the kinds of jobs people look for, particularly folks of color, 
when you have the opportunity to be college educated are jobs that compensate you well. Journalism is not known for compensating people well. What are the opportunities that allowed for you to be in journalism? How have you reconciled um, the, the passion you have for this work, your commitment to telling stories, and your need to support yourself, your need to have health? <laughs> Very good question. I left a, a relatively decent paying job at Caltech to become a public media journalist in 2002 and earning much less. And for years I struggled. But frankly, I've done it by, you know, like women of color know how to do this. We're hustlers. We hustle. We patch together a full-time salary out of any little thing we can. And so I've always had side hustles and side gigs. I'm also an artist. I sell my paintings. I have had a side gig as a weekly columnist, writing columns for pay and trying to demand pay when it makes sense for me to do so. And, you know, really trying to advocate for myself as much as possible, but also realizing that, um, you know, I, had, I have a friend who's who's like, why you should be on... CNN, you know, you should be on and mainstream journalism. I'm like, Look, they're not going to want me unless I swallow my politics. And that's where I draw the line. So I'm I would love to get paid oodles of money. Uh, but if that <laughs> means, um, you know, just swallowing my own principles and, sub, sub, you know, just just um, pushing them down, then then I'm not going to do it. And so I've had to carve a space for myself. And many independent journalists are doing that. And I count myself extremely lucky to be somebody who is actually managing to make a full-time living doing journalism. The other thing I do is I try to be just extremely good at it because I know that as a woman of color, I have to work two to three times as hard as the mediocre white male colleagues of mine to get recognized. You know, I'm out here like churning out stories, high quality stories every week. And people who are, you know, my white male colleagues who are doing half as much work and half as much, half as good, they get the accolades, they get the full-time jobs. And I know that's the reality of the business. That's not just true in journalism, it's true everywhere. So I'm just working hard and hoping that in a future where my children of color grow up, they will not have to work twice as hard to get half as much recognition and, you know, a decent living wage. Um, that's why I fight. I fight for the future. I fight for my children's future because we are a majority minority country. And very soon we will be a majority minority country within a decade. Very soon um, this country is going to have to reconcile its ideals with the reality and we are going to have to realize a multiracial democracy because there's no other way around it. They can't get rid of us. We're here. The train has left the station. <laughs> you remember like a teacher or a person in your life who told you you should be a writer, who encouraged you to do this work, who made you feel like it would be hard, but it would be worth it and you would be great at it. No, I can't think of a single person. All I've had been told to me is you need to do better. Wow. And maybe, maybe, maybe choose a different career path. <laughs> and, and I've had to believe in myself. I have had to tell myself every time that I thought I was doing the wrong thing, every time those voices got really loud. Um, I, I'll show you. I have I my own copy of my book yes. that I keep with me. I wrote a dedication to myself to Sonali for always believing in yourself. Love Sonali. Oh. <laughs> Thank you so much. That is, that. that is how I keep going. 
Oh, I think so many of us need to do that. And thank you for sharing that with us here at WORC 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. This is a public affair. I, I feel like we've got just a few minutes and you've shared with us so much about this book and what it has meant to you to, to write this book and to share these stories. Are there any stories right now that you think you just want to highlight for, for folks who are listening, things that you might not have on your radar, um, but that you think we should? We should all be talking about these things. We should all be. And people got kind of critical about this recently because you had the story about the billionaires and the submarine, and then you had that compared to the stories of refugees drowning um, and, and really folks starting to go, hey, why is one story getting so much more attention than the other? What are the stories that should be getting more attention right now? Um, and they're not. Um, so it goes in line with my book a little bit. Uh, Hollywood is on strike. The writers are on strike and the actors are on strike. This is a narrative setting industry. And what I want to cover and what I'm hoping people cover is how this strike radicalizes those who are in the narrative setting industry and hopefully pushes them to fold those narratives of what they're experiencing at the hands of greedy billionaires into their storylines. So my next book, I hope, will be about economic justice narratives, which there's so much overlap with racial justice, of course. Mm -hmm. And I want to see these actors and writers start to critique capitalism, start to critique billionaires because they've been on the receiving end of it and they are on the receiving end of it. And I, you know, that's the story I want to see. How is the strike going to change the stories Hollywood tells? If folks are not paying attention to the writer's strike and the actor's strike, can you tell us a little bit about what folks are striking for? Yeah, in fact, I'm going to cover it on my show today. I'm going to be uh, interviewing a journalist who's written about it. Um, actors and writers are getting pennies and pennies on the dollar of uh, for royalties. Used to be in the traditional media um, landscape, they would, you know, every time their show re-aired, they would get a check. And those are called residuals. And when the streaming giants came into the picture, they weren't giants back then. They negotiated these very tiny residuals. That has not changed. So there are actors who will get, you know, 10 checks for residuals and they add it all up and they've made maybe 50 bucks. You know, their show has been aired over and over again and they're getting nothing for it. And and the Hollywood does not want to change that. And the other thing is artificial intelligence. Hollywood wants to be able to use people's likenesses, pay them once for it and then use them in perpetuity. They're literally looking to replace actors. The end goal is to create on-demand films where consumers create the plot that they want to see, featuring the actors they want to see and have these fake stories at their fingertips that Hollywood wants to make a ton of money from. So those are the things that are at stake. It's existential. Yeah, so we're really talking about people's intellectual property. We're talking about people's, you know, livelihood. We're talking about compensation. And this is a story that I think is big on social media, but you're absolutely right. It's not being covered um, yeah. in mainstream media to, to that same same extent. So, Nali, I cannot thank you enough for writing your book, Rising Up, The Power of Narrative in pursuing racial justice. It has been such a, a gift to get to have you on the air with us today on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. This is A Public Affair. We'll see you all next Tuesday.
six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I.